The Bible reading this morning comes from Revelation chapter 21, from verse 1 through to verse 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. Then will he, then will be his people, sorry, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. So far the reading. Let me uh, lead us in a word of prayer. So we ask God to open our eyes to see the truth of Scripture. Let me pray. Lord, as we come before you now, uh, we ask that you will speak to us. Open our hearts to hear from you. Open our eyes to see the spiritual truths that you have in your word. And help us to really understand and grapple with the reality of what we're reading here. Lord, it is difficult to imagine a world without suffering. And yet, it is the one that you promise to all those who believe. And so as we look with hope to this future, we pray that you will plant its hope in us deeply so that we will be uh, strong to live in this world. But now we ask that you will change change us by meeting us through your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, friends, we live in a world of suffering, right? We, uh, We live in a world where suffering exists in every sphere of human life. And in fact, suffering, the the concept of human suffering is so pervasive, so all-encompassing, that uh, every person that lives on earth is in some way interested in how suffering is handled. And I guess one of the most interesting things for me is that in... um, in putting on, you know, every week we have on our Facebook and our Instagram, we've got uh, the, the, basically the picture of what's coming on Sunday. And the uh, performance of our picture for this week is 128 times more popular than any other post we've ever posted, which is interesting because this is about suffering. And it it just goes to show that suffering is something we all need to grapple with. We live in a world in which suffering is pervasive. It's everywhere. You know, there's the suffering out there that happens because of natural disasters, of earthquakes, tornadoes, tsunamis, uh, bushfires and the like. There is um, things like, you know, I was thinking about like Hurricane Katrina, which was a while ago now, 2005, Uh, But it's considered to be one of the most devastating natural disasters in the history of um, the United States. And it's estimated that it's caused over $150 billion worth of damage. It was catastrophic on almost every level. The flooding, uh, it flooded several of the states. It caused people to go homeless, destroyed roads, businesses, buildings. Uh, Death, disease came about because of it. There is suffering because of natural disasters, suffering out there. 
But then there's also the suffering on us, right, in our bodies. There's physical suffering that we go through. When you break a bone, it hurts. You suffer from it. You suffer from sickness, from dis-ease, disease, right? It's not easy. It's something that's uncomfortable. You can get an injury by an accident. You can suffer physically from small things like ingrown toenails uh, or terrible diseases like um, cancer, which takes your life bit by bit, or suffering from dementia, which destroys your personality bit by bit. There's suffering out there, there's suffering on us, and then there's suffering in here as well. Emotional suffering. This kind of suffering doesn't leave a physical scar, but it nevertheless hurts us deeply. A relationship breaks down. We are betrayed by someone we trusted. A loved one dies. There's trauma from things that have happened to us in the past. Betrayals, emotional hurts, abuse, amongst other things, can cause us to suffer in here, in our hearts. And the thing is, I don't need to explain any of this to any of you because if you've lived on this earth for any amount of time, you have experienced suffering of some kind. I don't need to introduce you to this as some sort of foreign concept. Some, suffering is something that all of us are deeply and intimately aware of because we have gone through it in some shape or form. And the question today is, what is God doing about suffering? And really I want to ask this question by looking at three sort of sub-questions that have to do with the Christian worldview of suffering. And so I think we have to start with the question of what is it that we believe about where suffering comes from? You know, what do, why does suffering exist? Where does it come from? What is God doing about it? And then what does it mean for our future? So, where does suffering come from? What do Christians believe God is doing about it? And what does that mean for us going forward? So let's look first then about where does suffering come from? Where does suffering come from? It kind of depends who you ask. You know, if you look back in the history of the world, if you look to, to the ancients, you know, the people who lived thousands of years ago, uh, they will have a particular thing. Suffering has existed thousands of years, and so they have a way of understanding suffering. The ancient Buddhists would say that suffering exists because we have desire, because we want things, because we have attachments to things. And the whole belief system of Buddhism is built around, you know, these four noble truths which outline a path for us to follow to overcome these desires, these, these attachments to things. The core idea in the Buddhist faith is that if you could get rid of your desire, of your attachment to things, yourself, the stuff you own, uh, other people, if you could get rid of all of that attachment, all of that desire, your suffering will end. You enter into sort of a transcendent blissful state because nothing can affect you anymore because you don't want anything anymore. You just become kind of this blank slate type thing. The ancient Greeks believed something similar in the, in the Stoics. They believed something similar. They believed that suffering happens because of our desires for things that are beyond our control. So for the Stoic, the idea was that you should simply accept every moment as it presents itself. You shouldn't desire pleasure or joy. You shouldn't shy away from pain. You, you deal with pain by using your mind basically to detach from the suffering. 
But what both of these ancient worldviews <coughs> have in common is that they essentially deny suffering. Suffering only exists because you want things. Suffering is only there because you have this desire within you. So get rid of the desire and you'll get rid of the suffering. But of course the problem with this is that that view is entirely unsatisfying. It only ever deals with perhaps the suffering you experience yourself. It says nothing about the brokenness of the world itself. You can stop desiring things as much as you want, but that's not going to stop a hurricane from destroying things. Hinduism, on the other hand, says that suffering we experience today is because of the bad things we've done in the past. It's all karma, after all. Bad things happen to you today because you deserve them, actually. So if you get cancer, that's on you. It's something, some bad deed you did maybe 200 years ago, maybe 2,000 years ago. And the people that die or suffer because of the hurricane, well, they really just deserve it. Maybe next time when they're reborn, they will have learnt to live better. You know, at least for the Hindu, they acknowledge the reality of suffering, but boy, oh boy, that speaks of a harshness that to the universe that feels unmanageable to us, doesn't it? But what about the modern kind of philosophy, the, the kind of humanist, secular, atheistic philosophy? For the atheist, suffering is simply a byproduct of the natural processes of the universe. Whatever happens in nature just happens in nature. There's no meaning to it. There's no purpose to it. Suffering just is, and it's ultimately actually pretty hopeless and pretty pointless. And the problem with the atheist's view is that I find that incredibly unsatisfying. It doesn't give us a way to deal with suffering other than a kind of nihilistic, well, I may as well kill myself because it's all meaningless and pointless anyway kind of view, which is in fact what Nietzsche finally concluded. The thing with all of these views of suffering is that none of them adequately deal with the issue them, it's themselves. Either suffering doesn't exist, or it's all your fault, or it's entirely meaningless. None of these options give you a comprehensive way of dealing with suffering. But Christianity actually does. You see, the Christian knows that suffering exists. Not primarily uh, because it's out there, but because... Uh, it's, um, because of sin. Suffering exists because the world itself is broken. You are not the cause of all the suffering you go through. You might be the cause of some of the suffering you go through. If you jump off a cliff and you break a bone, well, that's on you. Uh, that's not karma, that's just natural justice. Um, but a hurricane that comes and destroys your home, that's not on you. The Christian worldview is the only one who can handle that. The brokenness comes because the world itself is broken. Suffering comes because the world itself is broken. Sickness, death and disease exist because of this thing called sin. You see, the Bible teaches us that when God made the world, He made it good. And so He creates the world and He puts humans in the world, on the earth, to care for it, to tend to it, to look after it. And he gives them one rule only. He says, you can eat from, from any kind of fruit you find in the garden except for this one specific tree. If you eat from that, you will cause sin to enter the world and death will enter into the world. But sort of no sooner does God give them this command than they go and break it. 
And so, as God had promised, sin, death, disease enter into the world. As they eat of this forbidden fruit, everything changes. Sin breaks and destroys and taints and corrupts everything. We see immediately after, after this event, the relationship between, uh, between Adam and Eve, they, it breaks down. They start fighting. This perfect marriage that they have entirely breaks down. Womankind is broken. The joy that was supposed to accompany childbirth now goes with great pain and suffering. What was joyful is now painful because of sin. Work is difficult, frustrating. Things become hard in life. And the reason it is so hard for us to master our skills or to become an expert at something is because of sin. It, it should have been simple, but it's hard work because sin has entered the world. Work itself is frustrating. Work itself becomes suffering in a way. Death enters the world. Human beings who are eternal, we have eternal spirits, go through a physical death as a result of that, and that's suffering. All disease and sickness comes along with that. And even the earth itself as a whole breaks under sin. Romans 8.22 speaks of the groaning of creation. Paul writes in Romans, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. There is a brokenness to the very universe itself because the people that were in authority over it sinned and everything that they were in authority over was broken along with them. And the reason we get hurt is because of this sin. And the reason we hurt other people is because we're tainted by that same brokenness. The reason the world hurts is because of sin. And everything is broken because of that one action. And so the Bible teaches that suffering is, is very real, unlike the Stoic and the, and the Buddhist. And the Bible teaches that suffering has a cause, unlike the atheist, you know, there is a reason for it. It's not meaningless or pointless. It has a cause, which is sin or walking away, rejecting God. But the Bible also teaches that suffering has a solution, a solution quite outside of ourselves, unlike the karma-based belief systems. So what is this solution? What is God doing about suffering? That's the second thing we need to look at this morning. What is God doing about suffering? So we've seen where it comes from. The Bible says it comes from brokenness because we have rejected God. And what's he going to do about it? That's the second thing. <clears throat> now God responds to suffering in a few different ways. Firstly, the first thing God does after sin enters the world is that he makes a promise. He says, I'm going to do something about this. And when you read the Bible as a story, all of the Old Testament is a story of, of this development of this promise of God about how he's going to undo sin and suffering in the world. But it all points to the birth of Jesus, God's Son, which is God's ultimate answer to suffering. You see, God could have remained detached. He could have destroyed the world, uh, you know, as an evil thing. He could have left the world to be ruined if he wanted to. But instead, God the Son, Jesus, becomes a human being and he enters into our suffering. 
The first way God responds to suffering is by suffering with us. And friends, we have to grapple with just how revolutionarily remarkable this actually is. For no other belief system, no other God, anywhere, would enter into and suffer with those whom he came to save. No other religion has a redemption mechanism by which the God can fix the core issue of suffering. If you look at sort of the various, you know, sort of Roman and and Greek mythical options, gods are often depicted as powerful beings. You know, they have characters, they have attributes, but they don't typically undergo the kind of suffering and sacrifice that, that Jesus does for his people. You know, there might be a god like Zeus or Athena, they're powerful and so on, but they never sacrifice themselves for the sake of humanity. Instead, actually what we see is that they manipulate human beings all kinds of ways for their own purposes, for their own pleasures, their own desires. But they certainly don't die for those on earth. That would have been considered blasphemy against those gods. For the Hindu, a god like Vishnu or Shiva, they're they're to be worshipped because they keep the cosmic order in balance and so on. But their motivations are always either the the preservation of earth or the destruction of the universe, uh, rather than the salvation of individuals. They don't step in and sacrifice themselves to save the world. And even the Buddha himself teaches you how to get out of suffering by getting rid of you know, of disease by being liberated from it. But even he does not sacrifice himself the way Jesus does. And so the Christian faith has something that is absolutely unique, fundamentally different to every other option. God comes down and suffers with his people. For God loved us so much that he would enter into our suffering and suffer with us. But he doesn't just suffer with us, he actually also suffers for us. Jesus suffers for us. It's one thing to suffer alongside your creation, it's something else entirely to take the full consequences of the brokenness of sin on yourself in order to redeem the world. And that's exactly what Jesus does. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 53 verse 4 gives us this wonderfully vivid picture of a God who so loved the world that he would enter into our world and suffer for us in order to ultimately take the suffering away. And Isaiah says this, He, that is Jesus, himself bore our sicknesses. He carried our pains. But in return... We regarded him as stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. And so what Jesus ultimately does is he enters into the world, he lives this perfect life. And in the end, the world was so broken, so sinful, so evil in fact, that it could not recognize that this was God's son. And so the world, we, killed him. God had made himself vulnerable and killable And his creation killed him. 
And when Jesus is ultimately crucified, you know, put on a cross like this one, and when he dies, a remarkable thing happens. It's not just that Jesus dies, it's about what he's doing when he dies. As he hangs on the cross, there is this spiritual truth, the spiritual process that's happening at the same time. The sin of the world is being put on him. This issue that has existed from the beginning, this core of the sin issue that's been around since the Garden of Eden, is ultimately being undone. God is taking the sin of the world and putting it on Jesus himself. And just as sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, through, through one man really, so now Jesus has the consequence of sin being poured out on, onto him and being put on him. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the very heart of God's response to suffering. Another religion might say suffering exists because of karma. Maybe that it's a test of faith. Maybe even as a means to become enlightened. But only Christianity will say that God takes suffering on directly and suffers in our place, taking on the cause of suffering himself. And so Jesus suffers for us. He takes our sin on him on the cross and he dies under its weight. And he dies in our place. Jesus suffers for us. But he doesn't just suffer with us and suffer for us. He also defeats suffering, actually, three days later in the resurrection. How is it that we know that Jesus' work actually succeeded? How do we know that the cross actually worked? That he actually defeated that very thing that caused uh, suffering and, and death in the first place? How do we know that he actually defeated the power of sin and death? Because he came back to life. You see, on the third day after Jesus died, he's raised back to life. And when Jesus comes back to life, he proves not only that he completed his, his work, but that he now has power over sin and suffering. He's actually defeated death. You see, there's no one else ever who's managed to escape death all by themselves. But Jesus did. He dies, but death could not hold him. The power of death is broken by Jesus. And when he comes back to life, he proves that he's beaten it. Romans 6 verse 9 puts it this way, Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again because death no longer rules over him. One of the most astounding things that the Bible says about this is that if you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, if you trust him to also take away your sin, then this resurrection that Jesus has, where death no longer rules over him, actually also applies to you. The resurrection of Jesus becomes a picture of the resurrection of all those who would trust in and follow him. Uh, Paul the Apostle, one of the writers of the New Testament, puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, 
Afterwards, at his coming, at his coming, those who belong to Jesus. So if you belong to Christ, if you belong to Jesus, if you trust him and believe that he is the Lord, that he's taken your sin and put it on the cross with him and has taken it away now, then that resurrection of Jesus also proves that you will be raised from the dead on the last day. With a resurrection body, a body that is completely free from disease and from pain and from suffering. And when we're resurrected at the end of the world, there's no longer going to be any sickness because we will be fruit like Jesus was the first fruit. Now, because we're not farmers, it's helpful to explain what a first fruit is. Um, when you plant a crop, maybe of trees, of apples or something, uh, when the first fruit of that crop comes, so the first fruit that would grow and ripen, it gives you an indication of the quality of the rest of the crop. If your first fruits are kind of rottenish or small or a bit, you know, useless, then you can be sure that the rest of your crop is going to be small and piddly and useless. Um, but the first fruit from the resurrection of the dead is Jesus himself. And we, the crop that follows, will have a re resurrection like he does. Not small and piddly and a bit useless, but with a resurrection body that can no longer die, that is free from disease and sickness. That is what waits for all those who would trust in Christ. If you belong in Jesus, then you are part of the crop of fruit that will follow his first fruit. And one day, your suffering will stop completely. That is the picture the Bible paints for Christians. That is the picture of our reading from this morning in Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he, that is God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying and pain will be no more because the old order of things has passed away. Friends, if you trust in Jesus, then that is true of you. You will be there with God in that city where there is no more death or dying or pain or crying because the old order of things, which includes your broken body, has passed away. What is God doing about suffering? It's not actually a fair question. What has God done about suffering? is the more pertinent one. He sent Jesus to die on the cross to deal with the root cause of suffering, sin itself. We started the question, what is God doing about suffering? We saw the reality of suffering, that it comes from sin. We saw what God's doing about suffering, that Jesus enters into the creation, suffers alongside us, that he suffers for us, taking on the consequences of our sin on himself. That ultimately he's, uh, he defeats suffering by being resurrected from the dead. But now we might wonder, why doesn't God then just end it all now? If he's dealt with the cause of suffering, why, isn't he, why doesn't he just stop the world now? 
Why does he allow, continue to allow suffering to exist? Jesus, after all, died and came back to earth, you know, 2,000 years ago, up to life, 2,000 years ago. Why is he taking so long to bring about the end of all things? The answer is surprising. The answer is because of you. Not just you, but like humanity all over. Because God is being patient and providing an opportunity for all who would exist to come and follow him. The Apostle Peter puts it this way. He says, The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay, but he's patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but to come to repentance. The reality is that God is being patient with us and he invites us even today to turn to him. For us to be part of that crowd in that new city with that glorious future where there's no pain or dying or death and we get to be with God forever, there is one thing we must do. We have to come and bow our knee to Jesus to accept that we are sinful and we need him to save us. To accept the free gift of forgiveness that Jesus offers us through his death and his resurrection on the cross. To give our sin to him and to say, Lord, I want your perfectly lived life instead. You can have my bad one. I want your good one. And then to commit your life to following him from this day on until forever. Because when we do that, God makes a promise that we will be there with him. And not just that we will be there, but that he will be there with us. We will be saved, and one day all of our suffering will end, but that's not even the most important part. The suffering ending is a nice byproduct. The thing we get is that we get to spend eternity with God. You know, we are no longer separated from him. And like it was in the Old Testament in the days before sin entered into the world in the Garden of Eden, we will get to walk and talk with God every day. And we will stand there with Jesus in this new glorious future where there is no longer any sin for the curse has been broken and the old order of things has has passed away. And the pain you feel now will have been washed away. The pain in your body will be healed The sickness, the aches, the disease, all gone, for they have no place in that kingdom with the king of life. And the hurt that you've experienced in here will be taken away and your life will be with Jesus forever, even more sweet and wonderful for having experienced the pain and the suffering that you've gone through in this life. And you will get to spend eternity with Jesus who will be there as your Lord, but also as your friend. So what about you? How will you respond today? There's a couple of different steps you can take from here. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that invites you to come and to experience the forgiveness of Jesus. And if you have a response card or if you want one, and you can fill one of these in. There's offering bags at the back. You can drop yours in there. If you want to explore this more with some other people, you can do that. And we're going to connect with you. And in a few weeks' time, 
there's going to be, we're going to run a, a short course uh, for people who want to explore more. And this is a place where you can ask your questions in a really safe and non-threatening space. So if that's you, please fill that in, drop it in the bag just off to the side of the door on the way back. That's one way. If you want to rather just speak to someone privately one-on-one -on -one this morning, once we finish here and, and you know, we, people go and have their lunch, just stay in your seat and someone will come and come and chat with you, introduce themselves to you, offer to pray for you, hear your story and hear your questions. Or maybe you're someone who likes to find out more by researching, uh, by reading for yourself. We have a stack of these books on the back black table just as you exit. Take one, they're free. Uh, it is our gift to you. And it really explains in a lot more detail, um, in a, but in a way that's easy to read, uh, what it is we believe and why we believe Jesus is the solution to our problem. So please grab one if you want. Or if none of those are what you want to do, then please just join us for food. This is our gift to you. I mean, who doesn't like free food? So um, that is also one way in which you can respond. So please join us for our luncheon and get to, to know our family. So fill in the card so we can connect with you. Stay seated. Someone will pray with you. Pick up a book if you want one or join us for food. All good options. But for now... Let's uh, sing. So um, what we're going to do is in the f we're going to sing this song through twice. The first time is, is a space for us to respond to God. And our music team is going to lead us in that. Um, and they're going to sing for us. And this is an opportunity for you to reflect on what we've heard. This is a time to fill in your card if you want. A time to pray um, or do those sorts of things. It's also the time where our congregation members are invited to give our offerings to God and uh, as I said before, our offerings, the first one is for the local church, the second one is for this world-transformed place. If you're a guest with us, please don't feel obliged to give. This is for our church family. The gospel is free and always will be, so you are our guest today. Don't feel obligated. And the second time, they'll invite us to stand with them and to sing the song as well. So let's break and do that now.